Welcome back to the Bitcoin Layer. I'm Nick Batia, and today we have a close friend and a very special rates mind for you, George Guncalvis. George, thank you so much for joining us. George is the head of macro strategy for MUFG. They are a large capital markets player, and uh, we're very lucky to have George here to talk rates with us today. George, how are you doing? Great. Thanks, thanks for having me on, and good to see you again, as always. And Look forward to our conversation. Absolutely. So, George, let's start right off the bat with your view on Fed policy. We talked about how you had a pivot in your own mind mid last year where we had gotten so used to this easy and accommodative Federal Reserve for many years. And then all of a sudden we get the sense that the Fed means business. They are going to get aggressive. And that ha and you've stuck with that for a while. So give us an update on your view. How do you see the Fed and their a view toward monetary policy right now? Sure, absolutely. So I mean, as you know, all our views are always evolving with new information as they come. And these are my latest thinking, but they are built upon a view that has been changing since the middle of last year when the Fed got much more serious about uh, tackling this inflation problem. But also, I think also, you know, trying to, finally break the the whole idea of the easy money uh, uh, mantra and the the fed put i do i do think that the, the two are kind of uh, closely aligned i think that there's a, an attempt to actually uh, you know reduce overall liquidity in the system especially uh, after what we saw from the fiscal side so i think there's a there's a, a real kind of target on financial conditions more so than we've ever seen as a kind of as, as the vehicle towards you know, address, uh, addressing the inflation problem, but also achieving their mandate. Uh, and I think that they ultimately uh, realize that there just was and has been too much liquidity in the system. And it's been building on each other for, for many, many quarters, if not years, uh, up until the point they started tightening, uh, uh, you know, basically coming up on a one-year anniversary of that. But I, I, for me, like the, you know, the, the key was not, not just the size and the magnitudes of the, the rate increases went from the typical, which we were much more accustomed to the 25 bips at each sort of incremental increase in, in prior uh, hiking cycles, especially the 2004, 2006, and then the even more glacial 2015, 2018 period. And th those were, you know, at a time where inflation wasn't really the concern, the Fed was just trying to slow down the economy a little bit before inflation became a problem. Uh, and so moving to 75 in the 50s, like that, that really was uh, you know, sending a clear message that they mean business. But, you know, but, but why? Like, and, and why now? Right. I mean, after like, you know, seeing their balance sheet basically go from you know, four to four and a half, four to basically close to nine, nine trillion. I think it's really the liquidity side that, you know, they really need to uh, address. And so they at the same time, they also implemented quantitative tightening over the course of. Uh, starting uh, towards the summer of last year, and they increased the speed in September. And so th that kind of double tightening um, uh, and also this the very tough rhetoric, uh, it led to some pretty massive moves in rates. You know, I've been doing this for about 25 years, roughly now, I think. And, um, and you know, I've basically, for two thirds of the, of the 40 year bomb bull cycle has been my career. And so I've only I've always only seen lower and lower rates, and so you know, many of us that have been trained to kind of think this way, or had have seen the, the the comparisons to the Japan experience, and as you get higher and higher debt loads, it's hard to maintain 
uh, high levels of rates to service all your debt. And so you have that as kind of as your kind of your 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 main construct, which has been that way for the last really ten to fifteen years that I've been using. And then you get uh, you get that big shock last year. And I think you know the, you know the, the the break in like both trends that we saw with the downward channel with the ten year you know, breaking uh, for two two or three quarters of that down channel that's been with us since the nineteen eighties. I do think you have to be open minded. You have to be open minded that this is a Fed that's much more proactive. I do think that you know there, there is a risk that they're going to probably overdo it. And we can discuss that in a second if you want. But nonetheless, a much more proactive, uh, reactive kind of Fed will lend itself to both. You know, higher rates, higher volatility, more risk premium in the market, and this is something that none of well, many of us have not experienced for you know many many decades. And even if you go back to the 1980s, they're not a good comparison because a we didn't have the same sort of debt loads or or complexities in the system. So I do think this is uncharted territory. The Fed's you know my basic view is the Fed's going to keep going until either something breaks in the economy or the markets or both or both, and they're and they're on track for doing that. And it's so important to think about this multi-decade down channel in rates and how when you go into several consecutive 75 basis point hikes it is a different regime and potentially an altogether uh, different environment so we do have to be open-minded that the end of the bond bull market could be with us uh, but also at the same time um, it's not guaranteed so can you just speak to that like how do you think through this idea that we did break this down channel, um, but I, I know how you think that this thing, this whole thing is cyclical in that the Fed is in the process of over-tightening. It's impossible to actually think that when the Fed is has gone through 5% of tightening that it won't slow down the economy and rates will eventually come back down. So how are you balancing these two sides of it? Yeah, and I think this is one of the hardest things, uh, both you know, strategists, portfolio managers, traders, anyone that's in the markets that you know having to, to have a view or put on a, put on put on a view, is having uh, two kind of different views in the short run versus your long run type uh, thesis. Right, the long run thesis, you know, I think has uh, taken some some hits here about you know how low you know like is the bond bull cycle really really over. In the short term, this kind of cyclical kind of move uh, has been impressive, and so you have to respect it. I think having um, being able to separate both um, both of those short term and long term views is what's really critical, especially at this stage, given that no one really knows how far the Fed can really go. At the end of the day, they can put rates wherever they want. I mean, some people like have this kind of um, like dogma, that, oh, they, they have to stop. I'm like, well, why? I mean, they can go as high as they want. I mean, if they really think there's a problem or if they feel like they, they need to put insurance hikes in just to make sure the job is done, they can go well beyond what's priced into the market. And you know, and I think the last two weeks is a great example that the market has been skeptical. And I, I generally agree with the market's idea that eventually they're going to have to cut. We just don't know when they're going to cut. And so like having these like two opposing views of, in the short run, don't fight the Fed. I, th I think it works in both directions. And I think people forget that because they've been less hawkish or this aggressive in raising rates. You know, there's a skepticism that's still kind of um, is you know, pervasive in the bond market. And then, and then the long run view, which is which the bond market's really you know, clinging onto, which is why we have really deeply inverted curves and 
why we have long-term rates much lower than short-term rates and much lower than funding rates, even more importantly, is, is, is this idea that they're going to break something the more they, the longer they do this, you know, they, they almost ensures a hard landing. And so like, this is like this kind of, this tug of war between in the short run, we're going to see how high they can go and how long they maintain rates higher for longer. And what is on the back end of that could be something, you know, much more, um, worse than what's being priced into other asset classes, like for example, equities or credit. So we're getting like these kind of mixed signals from like the, the, the broader markets that, hey, we can handle these higher rates. I don't buy that. Uh, then you have on the, on the short run, the bond market finally starting to acquiesce and say, well, all right, they're, if they're gonna go to 5%, we cannot have the two year at 4%. And so we've had a pretty big sell off in the two year, uh, getting close to the highs that we saw last year. But then again, that even goes to show you that Last year, when we got the two-year to 4.8, and now we're at 4.7, that was even before all of these short-term forwards were pricing in a hiking campaign well into the 5% range, which is now the terminal is well into the five and a quarter, 5.3. So if like you know the bond market has finally woken up, at least the short-term interest rate interest rate market, the the stirs market has woken up to the idea that the Fed's serious; they're going to go as far as they can go. They can go much further than what we know. Or, or think is, is justifiable. But then on the, on the back half of that, we've also had a lot of cuts that were priced in for the, for the latter part of this year, which also have come out. And then we have cuts uh, still remaining in 2024, which probably are right to have, but you know, what might end up happening is like, we need to see a flush out of, of just all of this idea of, of decoupling from the Fed. The bond market, I think is gonna have to respect the Fed and get rates as close to whatever level they get to. If you go back to 2004, 2006, and if you look at the chart back then when they stopped hiking, they stopped at five and a quarter, right? So the five and a quarter um, lasted from June of 2006 to roughly uh, the latter part of 2007, almost like 14, 15 months. It was the longest kind of on hold at a very high level of rates. I'm not sure if they can do that, that, that again, but let's say they can get nine months out of it, uh, maybe close to a year. Uh, that, that, that's a long time, right? So if we're at... 5% plus, it's hard to have, you know, these uh, uh, other fixed income instruments trading well under the funding rate. And so, but even then, like in 04 to 06, uh, that at the end of that cycle, from 06 to 07, when they're on hold, like the two-year and the 10-year basically traded under Fed funds for 14 months. It would, you know, it would have, you know, mini rallies and then it would have sell-offs getting close to the Fed funds rate and then come right back down and rally. So we might be in a situation like that, but you know, when you have the 10 year still sub 4%, if the Fed is truly going to five or higher, it's gonna drag up rates. I mean, and that, and that people just don't have a hard time grasping that. Cause like, wait, this is like rates we haven't seen for in, in over a decade. It, it's just a number, right? I mean, they can get as high and as close to the Fed funds rate, which might present a very great you know opportunity. But at this point, I'm not fighting the Fed. And talk about the relationship with funding rates. So this is where George's expertise really comes into clear focus when we talk about the mechanics of financial plumbing and specifically the rate at which banks are funding their treasury books. So this is what George is referring to as the funding rate. It's the repo rate for treasuries broadly and that repo rate for treasuries is going to mirror the Federal Reserve's policy rate. So when we have twos and or tens that are trading lower than the funding rate, 
it means that it's more expensive to carry a treasury on your book than it is the yield that you're getting from that treasury on an overnight basis. But talk about what do negative or what is inverted to the funding level? What does that do to the banking sector? What does it do to the capital market participants? And how long can that last without the Fed having to pick up the phone from a bank and say, hey, you got to cut rates because we're, we're having to fund everything at a negative carry? Sure. I mean, so that's a, a, a pretty involved question. There's a lot of different moving parts and there's different levered investors. There's also you know the, the, the hedge fund community and investors that are non-bank entities that also borrow through the repo market that need to... Um, Get access to to to, to leverage and uh, and and then you know they can decide what to purchase and they typically want to buy something that's yielding higher than what they're funding at so they get a positive spread right negative carry is not a great way to run your business so negative carry does hurt over time ne- you know negative carry um, when you are basically you know, just to kind of you know, if you're funding at five percent and you're buying something at four percent. You have a uh, your yield for that. You know, on, a, on, a, on an accrual basis, you are actually uh, you know you're losing money from an actual uh, interest charge. Uh, but I mean, there could be times where if you buy something like a ten year note and it's trading at a hundred dollars par and or ninety five whatever, and and if if it rallies by five points, you you make you know five points up. Uh, you'll 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 take that total return relative to the negative. Hundred bips of running carry, you know, to keep things very simple, uh, you can still make money in the bond market with a negative carry, but it becomes much more challenging, and you have to get it right more times than wrong, because that negative carry is going to be always kind of nipping at your heels, taking away your 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 earnings. And so, like, um, this is true for you know, for mostly for the levered investors. You know, for the banks, it means more an opportunity cost about um, you know, could they. Uh, you know, park cash at the Fed and earn an interest that's close to the Fed funds rate uh, versus buying treasuries. I mean, that's also happening real time. We we now see, um, and it's again, it's an artifact of the remnants of the QEs that we've had for all these years. We built up all these massive re- reserve balances as well as some of those reserves have migrated over to the RRP, which I know you want to talk about as well. So, like you have like this you know, massive uh, amount of uh, cash in the system that could either buy treasuries if they want to, or park cash the Fed and earn an interest with a you know zero duration, zero counterparty risk. Not that treasuries have it either, but but just in general, you can face the Fed every night and earn a stream of of of, of carry that's. You know, high quality without having to take on any sort of interest rate shocks or, or sensitivity to, to, to duration. And so I think that's like the biggest consideration. Um, you know, when, when, rates were, when rates were lower or your opportunity cost from holding cash versus securities was, um, was, uh, was wide, you, you, you're more likely to take your excess cash when it's earning nothing and buy treasuries, even if they're low, low yielding because you're still making more than, than zero. Now that we have rates in cash actually as a viable asset class, it does then change the optics from a portfolio standpoint. And then from a leverage standpoint, it's just the, the carrying cost, which could really, you know, really hurt you. So talk to us now about more of the bull case for rates. This is a 
Uh, one of the big problems, George, last year that I saw in the macro analysis was talking about how treasuries were blowing up, right? Rates were going up across the curve, prices were plummeting. And so there was a panic in that uh, the, the bond bubble was over and this is the end of treasuries and rates are going to go to 8%. Now, the that side of the conversation ignored the deep inversion, which you alluded to earlier. The deep inversion is a sign that the longer term investors are unwilling to part with their treasuries despite a higher yield uh, from the policy rate and the front end of the curve as the front end has to reflect the mathematics of overnight policy rates compounded for the next one to two years. So sure, look, there, so there's some investors that are just uh, for um, regulatory reasons and really uneconomic reasons that are uh, mandated to have exposure to longer term fixed income securities like treasuries and corporates. Uh, that will give them a little bit additional yield, but you know, in the purest, cleanest, uh, high-quality liquid asset being treasuries, uh, you know, there's investors that will um, you know partake and be involved in, and not forego their treasuries because they they need to kind of either immunize some sort of you know, future liability, uh, and so that 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 doesn't completely go away even when you have a big uh, repricing in the bond market. Uh, those are structural features which do, do not go away, as you know. Um, I mean, I think like the bullish case, it's gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna, um, it's gonna evolve in a way where I think you can see it coming. It should not really surprise us as much as what we saw. Like last year was more of a shock to the system of like, wow, look how fast rates can sell off uh, when you have a really hyper uh, aggressive central bank um, you know, tightening policy. This time around, I think. Uh, yeah, you know, I don't. Well, again, unless something really materially breaks, and we have a credit event, or something, you know, really goes wrong in the plumbing, or something really bad happens that the Fed has to you know, completely change its tune. And, and if that's happening, then the economy most likely is decelerating into a hard, very hard landing, not just a uh, kind of a, a mild garden variety recession, which is kind of what my base case is still for the moment. Um, if you have a credit event, you know, that does change that that outcome. But you know, barring that, uh, the the you know, the bullish case for treasuries is a little bit longer term. It's more about um, you know, earning your yield, picking up carry. Um, if you're an unlevered investor, uh, and and just really just you know, really the simplest thing in the world: dollar cost averaging in. <laughs> to be honest, I mean, because I do think um, you know, again, even if the short rate goes to five and a half, six percent, which is not my forecast. Uh, you know, it's again within scope that if the Fed really needs, if thinks it needs to get the uh, short rate above whatever was the average uh, CPI rate over the last 18 months, if 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 it's CPI and inflation stays sticky and they feel like they need to go above, which is like the old Taylor rule approach of trying to you know, really kind of meet the level of inflation to make sure that at least you're you're uh, you know, really uh, suffocating it um, with with the with the interest level. If that's really what they decide to do, which I don't think it is, I think they're, they're taking a much more nuanced view. They're looking at you know, real rates. They're trying to you know, calibrate how much tightening can this economy really handle. And again, it operates with like you know long and variable lags. I think like let's say that you know we're the five the, the five handle in many ways. Uh, I mean, I kind of joke around about it. it could be a gift, right? I mean, like it, we have not seen five percent rates in the U.S. for such a long time, and. I don't think we really can afford it both as a nation as well as you know our housing market uh as well as you know the corporate sector 
at some point, they're going to need to refinance their debt. I mean, there's a this idea that we fixed rates, like we like uh, we all kind of we collectively as a nation have locked locked in low rates in housing and low rates in corporate America, and therefore we're immune to this rise in rates, and therefore it's not going to matter, right? There's that kind of argument out there, which I don't buy. It's just a matter of time before it actually shows up, and I think that's much more what's going to happen, more likely. Uh, but you know, like, you know, these are very high levels of rates. I mean, uh, when you have T bills um, offering yields as similar to, uh, you know, investment grade credit, you start to think like, why am I taking on any credit risk? You, you, you're, you now you're getting paid to actually be uh, defensive. So. I do think that there, it's not a bullish case in the sense like that what you and I were used to in the past, where you would have, you know, two three hundred basis point rally, and it'll be a total return, big mega move in fixed income. This is going to be more about earning the yield, um, and you'll you'll have times you'll have a rally, but I don't think uh, the Fed's going to go in slash rates to zero unless something really bad happens. And if it does, then something really bad happens. This is not great for the overall system in general, right? So um, I, I think that's kind of the the mindset that I'm using for for treasuries now it's more like a an averaging in product it's a you know it's a barbell that you can have as part of your other fixed income and, and your other assets because now it actually pays you a yield so talk about the core part of your thesis now which is that the, the economy itself can't withstand these higher rates and this idea of no landing is ridiculous that higher policy rates are going to drive a landing and that's just the cyclical nature of it so you mentioned the nation can't afford 5% interest rates, the housing market can't afford 5% interest rates, and the corporate sector can't afford 5% interest rates. It's There's a different reason for each. So can you get into maybe some of these components? Where do you think the biggest trouble is ahead for the economy? And how does that impact your call for uh, a mild recession, I think, is your base case right now? Well, let's actually like go from like the super minutia and then work our way up. I mean, and I'm sure you are aware and you know that the the the, the Fed's portfolio used to be positive carry, uh, and it would actually the uh, would send um, its its extra cash to the treasury, um, and that would help lower our you know financing uh, or, or or deficit needs. That has gone away, so now the the Fed's actually running a uh, like a. a, a a negative carry kind of position, which they're going to build up over time. And with the idea that this is this asset would be paid off once uh, either rates go back down again and they start to earn interest enough to pay off that difference. But nonetheless, we've lost about, we as a nation lost about 75 to $100 billion right there. Uh, then, you have, then you have the idea of you know, our deficits have been larger and larger and the interest burden part of it is going to become one of the biggest components of the of the budget going forward. Uh, I mean, I just you know at five percent, you're talking about you know close to a trillion dollars of of interest service costs, which it's going to start to eat into other things. Or you know, you're going to have to raise taxes. I mean, it just literally it just starts to really short circuit um, the longer we stay at five percent. This is this is another reason why I think the bond market deep down inside realizes that. All right, maybe for two or three quarters, you maybe may, might be able to keep rates this high, but for a year or two, we just can't afford it. So you, so you have that, and then you have, you know, the, you know, and, and by the way, let's let's also remember that the the government sector and the corporate sector 
are the two sectors that have been levering up and the household has not, but you know, still sensitive to, to rates. So you have you know these you know, big parts of the of the of the economy that are sensitive to rates and now are being held back, which will then uh, you know, kind of constrain their ability to really be as supportive if we were to see another shock going forward. Not that I envision anything similar to, to the COVID shock or even 2008. But the point is, like, we've lost our fixed fiscal flexibility the, the, with, with high rates like this. It's very hard to, to come out and do multi-trillion dollar stimulus packages and things like that. It's just too expensive. We, we can't afford it. So, like, like, so it, it curtails the kind of like the, the support part of what the government has been doing, which is basically, uh, you know, providing balance sheet at a time when the consumer was deleveraging for the last 10, 15 years, right? So you had that, you had that piece of it. And then on the corporate side, yes, corporate America was smart to lock in as much as they could during the two years after COVID when rates were low and spreads were tight. But, you know, there is a turnover, a natural turnover of, um, of debt, which will result in new future credit issuance being at higher rates and higher spread and wider spreads. Like th that too will then start to impact cash flow for corporates. And then they're gonna have to make decisions. Do they, you know, start, they start like laying off people or, or hire less people and then eventually lay off people. Like, you know, they start prioritizing. Uh, and I think that's still coming down the road. So like, we just can't afford it. I mean, it, it will start to bite, I think by the middle of the year into the end of this year, and the Fed will be done by then anyway, most likely. Uh, and then we'll be either in the five handles or, or north of it. We'll see. But nonetheless, it's just going to be too much of a burden. And then I think that you know, at some point something gives. We don't know what that is. I think it's hard to tell. But there's so many different uh, you know, things going on. And, and also compared to, which I know we can discuss too, and I'm sure you have this as part of your questions, is like the, the whole RRP and the standing repo facility. And then also the fact that the Fed has you know, seeing crises happen multiple times, that they've gotten better at re responding to it. So maybe we don't have as bad of, a, of, a, of an impact or um, or the impact won't be as bad if we do see a credit event because there's all these tools now to kind of mitigate it, but we'll see. So talk about the window. So the Fed used to use uh, a Fed, a Federal Reserve, let's just say a reserve rate uh, window and it would use policy rates on each side to try to get the Fed funds rate in between this window. Now it has the reverse repo rate, the reverse, sorry, the reverse repo facility and the standing repo facility as two policy rates that help that window. And one could argue that those rates are the window now versus the other mechanical rates that they used to use. So can you educate our users as if, I mean, sorry, our audience as if they didn't understand how the Fed actually has a Federal Reserve, like uh, a Fed funds rate with within a window. Sure. I mean, like we, we, you know, we, we have to go back to pre 2008, when there was you know, very little reserves. And the reason for that is like, you know, banks would not want to have extra cash around that's not deployed. They were always, you know, profit maximizing and trying to make sure that they're, you know, fully invested. Uh, after 2008, with the you know, with the advent of QE and all these extra extra reserves that were pumped into the system, uh, you know, the Fed, you know, rightfully so, was concerned that you know there would be slip slippage from these reserves 
uh, back into the economy, which would then potentially be like hyperinflationary. Again, that was that was the fear initially, right? But they you know introduced these tools of interest on reserves as well as the reverse repo program, because you know, the U.S. banking system, as complex as it is, as you know, there's a is a whole you know, depository institution, um, commercial banking side. There's a money market system. Uh, there's you know there's a federal home loan banking system that's also in between there as well, which is very unique to the U.S. Um, it's all these different um, you know big bodies you know would uh, influence what should be like the overnight rate uh, pre 2008. Uh, there was a viable uh, federal funds uh, market that traded, and then after all this liquidity got pumped in, it became inert and basically started you know just sat at the Fed's balance sheet. But in order to uh, as liabilities. Um, in order for the Fed to actually, um, you know, guide up rates, in the past it would do it through you know repo operations in the T bill market and try to push up rates, make sure that they were staying honest with what the target was. Now they actually have these things, these things called administered rates, which is based on these you know, these these programs, the reverse repo facility, or we call it the RRP, the reverse repo program, which is a uh, facility for money market funds to park their cash at the Fed. And receive treasuries, you know, collateral, just you know, on an overnight basis. And um, you know, the the banks have extra, they have extra cash, uh, can deposit, and, and they do deposit the reserves at the Fed, uh, and earn also an interest. Um, and and the two of those levels are basically what's been guiding up the Fed funds rate. But this is a very mechanical type process. Um, and you know, and, and in many ways, like you know, pre two thousand eight, it was the market that kind of dictated the price of money, and the Fed would just influence it to make sure that it stayed within a band. Now the Fed's actually physically paying, you know, market participants like money funds and banks a rate on their excess cash to make sure that it actually hits their target. So it's a very different. It's this whole idea of the abundant reserve system uh, that some central banks have, uh, and it's again, you, it's. Part and parcel of to what you need to use anyway. When you, after so much QE, it's like the again, like I said at the beginning, it's an artifact of all this QE, this excess liquidity. So they have to manage it through these tools. Talk about the risk environment right now with the backdrop of higher rates. So in 2022, higher rates meant terrible environment for risk assets. This year, we see correlations marginally declining and that higher rates are not causing the same spill in stocks as they did and in credit as they did in 2022. So do you think this shifting correlation uh, is a trend to watch or something that's short-lived? Talk to us about, I know you're a rate strategist, but think, you know, talk to us about how rates are affecting risk this year for, and going forward versus how they affected them last year. Sure. So last year, again, being a shock and the speed of the move in rates led to an increase in general volatility and, you know, in both implied volatility as well as realized volatility for rates, which then you know, spilled over into you know, FX, credit, equities. But it was more the speed that kind of kills you. And I think it was really that was what uh, caught the markets by surprise. But I mean, let's be honest, at the same time, there was uh, it's very elevated valuations in equities in terms of PEs, very tight spreads in credit, uh, and the dollar was relatively cheap and had a big move last year. But that's all last year, right? But the thing is, for this year, 
um, you know, the beginning of the year, we can discuss if you want, like what's happened so far. But from here on out, uh, just, just because we're seeing less amplitude in terms of like rate moves, they're still pretty high. And so if you go back to the world of pre-1990s, and if you look at the way the rates markets behave, and we looked at like realized vol because we didn't have an implied vol market back then, um, and you look at just the oscillations, and also again, as I mentioned at the beginning, you know, such central banks back, you know, early '80s, late '70s, again for a lot of different reasons, were much more proactive and sometimes got it wrong. They did they they hiked too much, then cut too much, and and. Again, maybe we, we learned our lesson. We're going to get you know, more fine-tuned policy from here on out. We'll see. But I, I do think that we're, we're moving towards, and this is where I'm keeping an open mind around the idea that perhaps the bond bull cycle is dead and over, but it doesn't necessarily mean it starts a big bear market in bonds either. We could trade sideways. By trading sideways, it actually becomes very volatile because you start to go up and down in, the, in these bigger channels which could very well be. Let's just throw number numbers out there. Maybe it's you know two percent, you know, and four percent. So you can bounce around two to four, two to four, two to four, and like the more you bounce around, that's still volatile, and it, it leads to higher rate vol in general relative to what we're what we're um, accustomed to. Many of the fixed income um, uh, you know systems and just trading strategies have been built in the last 15, 20 years on just harnessing low vol and selling vol. So if we're in a you know sideways type market and we're bouncing a lot more so and kind of similar to what we saw in the in the you know late 70s early 80s not not with the same magnitude in terms of level but the same sort of general spirit of major oscillations you end up with um, the tendency for more flatter curves and inverted curves higher rates higher vol and higher risk premium in all asset classes, which means a downgrade in valuations for, for many assets. So this idea that, oh, we've dodged the bullet just because now rates are gonna stop moving and therefore um, you know, it's gonna be okay for equities and for credit, I don't buy that argument. I, I think one, as I've been mentioning through the, our conversations, I, I do think it's now competition for those asset classes, these higher rates. And then the higher rates themselves are a funding issue for highly levered consumers and for corporates and even eventually for the U.S. government uh, in terms of picking and choosing what to, to, to finance. Uh, and so I, I, I do think um, you have, you know, you have these, these new factors to, to contend with, which we've not had for the last, again, since the, the decline in rates that we saw starting from the, you know, the late 80s. And so if we go back to like the pre-1990s world, which is, again, much more proactive uh, or reactive central banking, then rates will trade in a channel, but they can still be pretty volatile and that will then create uh, issues for other asset classes. Talk to us about QT, the process that the Fed is going through right now to reduce the size of its balance sheet. Treasuries are maturing off of the balance sheet of the Fed and they're not replacing them. This is... Um, this is a topic that you've written about for years. You even used to track the, the QT schedule, the days of the large runoffs of when the treasuries would actually be maturing and potentially correlate them to what was happening in the rest of the system. Now I'm seeing a lot more dialogue around this topic where people are watching the QT change, or let's just say the, the change in the balance sheet of the Fed 
the change in the treasurer, uh, general account, treasury general account, the change in the RRP facility, the change in the level of bank reserves, how these are all interacting and how that is impacting risk. What kind of work have you done on this and what are you tracking on this topic? Yeah, so the, the good thing is that we've seen this movie before. We've seen QT1 and we saw that from 2017 through uh, the middle of 2019 before we had that whole you know, repo uh, madness and, and flare up in September of, of, of 2019, which again was you know, months before COVID, of course, was not predicting COVID or, or, or a, a shock of that magnitude, but it did um, expose the fragilities of the system. Um, and so I, I, we have to kind of, um, like, like with everything else, like, as I mentioned in the beginning, you have to have a short-term view and a long-term view. And on the, on the very short term, you have QT in the background, uh, you know, taking away, you know, slowly decreasing the Fed's balance sheet. It could have been faster if it wasn't for this big rise in rates. Um, the Fed owns a, a disproportionately large amount of mortgages um, as, a, as a percentage of the overall universe, especially the lower coupon mortgages. When they were buying them, there were much more lower coupons. So the, the likelihood of those mortgages prepaying and actually returning back principal and shrinking the Fed's balance sheet is low. So we're not really seeing the benefit from that. But from the Treasury maturing schedule, which is uh, more pro programmatic and actually on a, on a schedule, yeah, that's happening uh, you know, week in, week out, every couple of weeks. And it's resulting in a, in, a, in a slide lower in their balance sheet. Now, the Fed in every single <laughs> press conference has focused on the rate uh, um, lever and that as being their main tool. And they rarely talk about the quantitative tightening or the balance sheet shrinking. I mean, some have even gone, gone on as far to say that, oh, they don't even know how this really works through the system. I, I challenge that. I think they do know how it works through the system. Um, but, you know, it is, um, it's in the background. It's slowly, again, also chipping away, reducing liquidity in the system. Uh, but we have to take a, a huge step back and look at how much did they put in to begin with, right? I mean, I mentioned before that basically went from like four to nine trillion uh, in a matter of you know, 18 months uh, during the COVID response. And so even though we're seeing you know, 80 to 90, whatever billion reduction per, per month, it's not that much. And perhaps that's why they're comfortable with leaving it on like a cruise control and in the background and not really focused on it. But once they stop hiking rates, whatever the number that might be, five, five and a quarter, 550, whatever the number it might be, if they maintain the QT in the background, that compounds that, liquidity withdrawal and it and it matters and so that there's that as a kind of a medium term long term structural force i mean some fed speakers have gone on to say that they view rrp and bank reserves as almost fungible and if they really truly believe that which again i'm not sure they do but if they believe that then what they're basically suggesting is that banks should raise deposit rates to pay for funding their bank portfolios like you know the, the, for years we've had if banks not really the deposit beta has not really translated from Fed hikes has not really raised people's savings or checking account uh, interests that they've been earning. Um, so there's there's that dimension, right? And you have at the same time like the U.S. banking system being as complex as it is, you have large banks and small banks, and some of the smaller banks might not be able to compete as well with the large banks in terms of maintaining their deposits, and so. You have that in the background, right? So QT is shrinking reserves from the system slowly. The RRP also has benefited from the rise in rates because you know, the money funds um, 
contrary to the banks, actually do pass on the rise in rates pretty quickly. And so that's attracted cash to the money funds, which don't have as much uh, actual collateral to invest in. So the money goes right back to the Fed's balance sheet, ironically enough. But it's actually earning some interest. So that's fine. It's all, it's all fine and good. The, the, the challenge, uh, the medium term, what I just described, medium term, long term, that can stay on as long as there's no major crisis in the system or the economy doesn't go into a real deep, uh, hard recession, right? And even if it does, I don't, even, I don't think they're going to rush to do QE. The, the most, most obviously will we'll, we'll stop the QT. I don't think they'll flip and do QE like they did last time because they've seen what QE does now if you do too much of it. So I think the, the hurdle for QE is pretty high. So you have that in the background. In the very short term, though, uh, there is the other uh, large um, bucket on the Fed's balance sheet, which is the Treasury General account. And that ebbs and flows with how the U.S. government pays uh, its, you know, its, uh, its, its debts, its obligations, its uh, you know, um, you know, various uh, entitlement programs, whatever the case may be. The U.S. government has a lot of bills to pay, and they, they, they source that cash from the Treasury General account. And when you're facing a debt ceiling like we are now, which again, you know, I'm sure all your readers and, and, and viewers uh, have seen or have heard about this, but this is not the first time that we're having a debt ceiling uh, showdown, but it still has a mechanical aspect to it that we should be aware of it and understand how it works through the system. So in the very short term, ironically, the, the Treasury's general account, if it goes down to pay off bills instead of raising cash through the bond market because the U.S. government is coming up to its debt limit, that actually injects liquidity into the banking system, which is very high powered money, which could go anywhere into buying more stuff, uh, uh, you know, go towards uh, funding positions, towards uh, buying assets. And that is why, you know, you mentioned before, if you keep, keep track of the, the week in, week out moves in the reserves, they have a, you know, at least a decent correlation with the ebb and flows of the market. Uh, the, the broader risk market. So if Treasury general account goes down because it's trying to make space for the debt limit and, and also to you know, pay off its bills until we get the debt limit extended, that can inject liquidity over the course of the next two or three months, potentially. The difference this time versus what we've experienced for the last 15 years is that when the U.S. government has done these debt ceiling negotiations and then had to rebuild cash afterwards, it was when rates were close to zero. So the opportunity cost was very little. Now, we, you know, the, there's a, a possibility that we'll get to a point where hopefully we won't default on our debt. I don't think that, that's not, not, my, not my base case. I don't think it's, it's anyone's base case. We'll get this resolved. And then that, on, the, on the back of that, we'll start to see the Treasury rebuild its cash position. And that will then issue more debt, but they're issuing debt at, with a five handle, probably at, at that time, uh, we'll see where rates are, but they're going to be uh, basically offering a lot of bonds at very attractive levels, which will then, at, in my opinion, this is where I think the rubber hits the road, where you have this, you're going to get spun around in a very quick way. You might see the, the broader markets trade sideways between now and until the resolution is done. So up and down, up and down, up and down, really not making major progress. But then once the U.S. government starts to replenish its, 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 its basically its checking account at 5% rates or higher, that's going to crowd out other investments. And that's, that's I think that's, that's what might be what really will be the final kind of big move for this market, which will 
be in the realization that there's a big slug of bonds are going to be issued at you know five five NT bills, of course, they're going to be issued at very high rates, and that will start to compete with other asset classes over the course of the summer and into the fall, and probably at a time where the economy is probably showing signs of weakness. So I think that's my basic kind of view of how the liquidity in the short run differs from the long term. The long term, they'll keep the QT in place as long as what I just described does not disrupt anything mechanically in the plumbing. If something does get disrupted mechanically in the plumbing, they'll stop QT and that's the easiest thing for them to do. But I don't I think they're gonna hold off on on making any major changes until they get rates as high as they can, stay on hold as long as possible, see what happens with the debt limit increase, and then take it from there. We could have done the entire show on the crowding out effect. George, thank you so much for joining us today and discussing what 5% treasury yields uh, have the potential to do to other asset classes, what the Fed is looking at, and some of the nuances of monetary policy mechanics. George Goncalves, head of macro strategy at MUFG. Thank you so much for joining us. Just tell people really quickly where they can find you online to track your work. Absolutely. And, and just also for the record, I mean, since for those that got to this this far and heard all my views, these are my overall general views. These do not constitute a recommendation or a trade idea. But the, you know, I'm, I'm a macro strategist. Uh, you can follow my work. You can just email me directly uh, or you can follow me at Bond Strategist on Twitter. Great. George, thank you so much for joining us here today at the Bitcoin layer, covering Bitcoin through a global macro lens. Thank you.